And now, coming to you live from a slightly recuperating Waldorf room, part way up the Co- Code Street Model 6, it's the Code Street Podcast with Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf. And welcome back to the world of post jet lag. I hope so, yes. It's, it's taken a while. I think anybody who was brave enough to persevere through last week's podcast would have realized that we were a couple of fairly tired individuals, me particularly, after the mm. long slog back from uh, Dubai and, and Toronto. But, but we're both back in balance now, I presume. I <laughs> well, it, it's that special kind of end-of-year balance, though, Gary. And because, of course, whilst it's the 17th of November here in Perth and the 16th of November there, as we record, it's actually sometime mid-way through 2013. Um, we're, we're surrounded by new books. We're making end-of-the-year lists. I've just finished the table of contents for my best of the year, which has to be with the publisher in about eight minutes. Wow. Well, okay, the 12th of December. Well, that's that's reasonably close. Yes. Uh, so so the, the end of the year is, well, it's, it's, it's upon us, it's over, it's insane. Well, there are end-of-the-year things that we have to do. You have to do a year's best. We all have to work on a recommended reading list uh, at the same time that we have to get our you know regular stuff done. So the, the end of the year is odd because it ought to be a time of sort of well, vacation time, family time, certainly, and that sort of thing. I think I mean, so. We have, we have here in the States next week our Thanksgiving. Yes. Which takes up a couple of days of spending time with kids. Yes, which is nice. And, mm-hmm. and it, I kind of feel like, yes, even though we're running in towards uh, the hotter time, times of the year here, uh, it's the time when you think that Christmas lunches at work are coming around and fa- mm. family gatherings and all this kind of thing. And what you really want to do is begin to move a bit more slowly and have a drink and a bite to eat. And all this insistence on summarizing the year, which on one hand we love and have been um, very active participants in. On the other hand, is, is sort of like this, this sort of like, oh, we have to work through, do we? It's like when Charles used to come out here over the new, over Christmas New Year, mm-hmm. uh, so that he could, well, part, part, partially at least, so he could work through through the time. And you know, like I, I go around on this. I, I love it. I love doing my best of the year. I have in the past loved doing recommended reading, even though it feels a bit like work this year. Um, and I, I've got a, a bit of a love hate relationship with with the list th- process. Um, I, you know, I was reading the there's a a round table being put together for for Locus mm. website talking about this very issue about the value of lists and how we feel about them, and I'm I vacillate I guess is how I am I, I love them and I hate them. How about you? Ah, uh, we're talking about um, uh, well the issue which will eventually show up in the Locus Roundtable blog actually had to do with with putting together all time lists, and then the other question that comes up is ranking lists which seems to irritate everybody, and it irritates me, but if, if I hear, let me put it this way, if I'm on the web and I see a link that says, here are the 10 best yes. mystery novels about cats, I don't care about mystery novels about cats, but I will click because I want to see what the list is. Oh, okay. So I, I think as much as we hate lists, <laughs> we look at them. Oh, okay. But this is it. This is why I say I love and I hate the lists. I mean, I hate, I hate the lists because I know they're always somewhat flawed. I love them because I, I like the whole summarizing thing. I love I love the, the way we talk about the field, and lists are part of one of the tools we use to talk about the field. Mm-hmm. They allow us to synopsize periods of time. They allow us, hopefully, to develop a dialogue 
between readers about what we think is worthwhile and interesting and important so that when I turn around and say, you know, my favorite book of 1997 was Antarctica by Stephen King. No, I'm sorry, by King Stanley Robinson. <laughs> Antarctica, that would have been... Oh, what a Let's book. Put together a list of books that should have been written. Oh, Antarctica by Stephen King. That, that probably would have been more like Dan Simmons' The Terror, don't you think? Probably would have been, yeah. But uh, so, so I mean, when I say that, and then you might come back with something else, we begin to get a dialogue about what we think is important in the field, and we can exchange information. So that's what's interesting. I mean, what I love about the recommended reading process, for example, is not the final recommended reading list, which I'm not as wedded to as I once was, even though I think it's interesting for various reasons that we've discussed before. Mm. But I'm interested to see what people put through as their lists, you know, and to talk about and say, well, this is what I thought was interesting in, during the year. You know, not terribly long ago, Farron, for example, Farron Miller, Locus's reviewer, sent me mm -hmm. her personal recommended reading list for 2012. Some books which will make the final list, some which may not, I don't know. But I mm -hmm. look at it and I'm going, well, okay, well, that tells me what Farron thinks is, is worthwhile and interesting and important. And I, I get to see that from you. I get to see it from other people. That's, that's interesting to me. I think it's an interesting dialogue. I think... Um, that it's interesting because you have respect for the people you're seeing lists from. Yeah. Uh, by the time of the locus, the, by, okay, we're going to say the word awards again, which is really tiring. But by the time the locus awards come around, there's there's a voting process and there's a list that gets ranked essentially by popularity. Um, and people still look at that list. People want to know where they were on where they were on the list of the rankings of the Hugo ballot. The argument in favor of rankings is this. Uh, the, uh, first of all, agreeing with you that the only value of lists is to get discussions going. Yes. Um, and, and generally I'm surprised at how much consensus there is on these lists. I mean, having been on various juries, uh, there, I've never been on a rancorous jury yet. I've been on juries where there were legitimate disagreements, but, um, but by and large, a, a large area of consensus. But when you rank a list, you're really throwing down a gauntlet to somebody. Yeah. Uh, you're essentially saying, I am choosing this over that. And if you have five novels on the list, it's probably, you can probably defend all five of them. If you have 40 or 50 novels on the list, then the question always comes up, what's the difference between number 40 and number 45? I mean... Well, yeah, I, I remember having this philosophical debate with uh, one of my co-jurors when I was a World Fantasy Award judge. You know, if you rank the, the five books that we are considering one to five... The difference between one and two for you may not be the same as one and two for me. Mm. I may love that book and not mind the next one. And so there's all that relativism that comes in. How good a book do you think this is and why? I mean, and that's the other part about it. Hopefully, any discussion that you have about lists ultimately comes back to why. I mean, so you think that the best science fiction book of the year was The Hydrogen Sonata by Ian Banks. Why? Mm -hmm. So you think 2312 by Kim Stanley Robinson was the best science fiction book of the year. Why? Why was Jagannath by Karen Tidbeck the best collection of the year, if it was your choice? Those mm. are the questions you want answered. You know? And it's always interesting because things don't equate. I mean, for me, one of the best books of the year, and I think for you, was Caitlin Kiernan's The Drowning Girl, mm -hmm. which is a bold, powerful novel. One of the other best books of the year was Some Kind of Fairy Tale by Graham Joyce. They're not immediately alike or comparable. They're not trying to do the same thing. Exactly. And that's the that's the problem I have, and when, when I look at that sort of list, is you have, it's not as though you, it's not as though it's the Olympics. They're not they're not both running the five hundred meters. 
no. uh, and where you can measure a difference. So books with different aspirations, slightly different genre orientations, obviously are incomparable. And, and, and it's what you end up doing is, is making a, a, a personal judgment, which is an invitation to an argument. The, yes. um, the, the example I use, and I, I think I mentioned this in, in, in uh, posting something to the, the roundtable, which I'll get in trouble for repeat, repeating it here, maybe several years ago, maybe, oh, more than 10 years ago, when Martin Harry Greenberg was around, he was doing a book, uh, he was trying to put together a book for Citadel Press. Citadel had made its name, or had certainly at that time made the bestseller list practically, with a series of books called The 100 Most Important Blank. Uh, mm-hmm. They did a book called The 100, maybe it was The 1,000 Most Important People in History, yeah. The 100 Most Important Jews in History, The 100 Most Important African Americans. And the idea was to rank them. So Marty, being ever efficient at getting contracts, had contracted them to do the 100 most important science fiction books, not necessarily the 100 best, the 100 most important. Yep. And and he asked me to do it. And he said, come up with a list of 100 books, but you have to rank them one to 100. And I said, that's perfectly silly. Uh, David Pringle has a perfectly <laughs> fine book. At that time, David Pringle had his list out. and It, it, it was in chronological order. And I said, why do I have to rank them? And he said, because that's what sells books. Yeah. If you, if you see a list of 100 great books, you think, oh, that's a list of 100 great books. If you see a list in which your book is number three or four, um, and you think it should be number one, and the reason they learned this was in their um, 1,000 most important people in history, I think. Yeah. Jesus came in third. <laughs> After Muhammad, Muhammad was number one, and Isaac Newton was number second. Was was number two. So you can imagine the kind of response that you get <laughs> in uh, religious communities and so forth and so sure, on. Sure. So the more controversial the list the more copies got sold. Yeah. See, I've only ever read one book like that at all. It was a book called A Thousand Recordings to Hear Before You Die. Mm-hmm. And it's a great book uh, written by a jazz critic, Tom Moon. And I love it. It's, it's, it. It is the best what I call toilet read in the world for me. Yeah. It sits in the bathroom and it's great. But it doesn't attempt to rank anything. It kind of goes, well, these things are all in, in the... The, the sphere of, of a th- the top thousand recordings, mm-hmm. those things over there are are sort of just outside it, and they're all listed alphabetically and cr- you know, cross-referenced, that kind of thing, which is quite interesting thing to do. But there's no attempt to say that you know the best recording of all time is because it's nonsense. I mean, we've talked about this stuff many times before, but one of the questions I can never answer is like, what's your favorite science fiction novel of all time? I don't have one. I've read a lot. And mm-hmm. I like different ones for different reasons at different times. There are times when there's nothing more that I would li- than I would like to read is the new Terry Pratchett book, or uh, I want to go back and read an old Al Reynolds novel or, or an early St- Stan Robinson for different reasons. You know, it, it's not that simple. And well, and, and yeah, and, and when you start making up reasons, or when you start discovering reasons for making that choice, it becomes less of an emotional choice and more of a forensic choice in a way. Yeah. So, I mean, so Marty was asking me, Marty was saying, you have to name the number one most important science fiction novel. And immediately I thought of my favorite novels, and immediately a lot of them didn't quite qualify according to any defensible standard. And eventually you become an academic about it. You start thinking, well, when was it published? What was its influence? I think at one point, I think I, I'll go out on a limb. At one point I came up with The Time Machine as the most important science fiction novel. Yeah. And I must have had good reasons for that. I'm sure it was quite defensible, but that doesn't make it attractive. Let, let, no. me, let, let me shunt you around, though, a little bit, because we, you know, we are sort of covering 
old ground a little bit. Mm. And so I thought I'd I, I, let's preempt our recommended reading list because we've both got work to do uh, mm-hmm. on on this. And I'm sitting here in my office looking at some of the 2012 books. And I'm curious, what are you? What are the ones that you, off the top of your head, as the ones you liked best, recall the most from 2012? This is um, an unfair question because you've just reminded me of three of them. Of course, uh, you reminded me of 2312. I would uh, the, the 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 Stan Robinson and the Caitlin Karen and the Karen Tidbeck would certainly have been on that list. Um, sea Hearts or uh, the Brides of Roll Rock Island would be on the list. Um, let me think. That's interesting. Without, without, see, when, I'm, I'm literally trying to do this off the top of my head without looking at even what I've uh, read during the past year. Um, there were a couple of novels that I didn't, it was, it was actually one novel that I didn't um, review. I didn't read it for review, but uh, I, the copy was sent to me too late for review. And I thought I was going to read it because, uh, because Liz Hand is a friend, but I, found Radiant Days utterly compelling. I, I zoomed okay. through it in a night and a half. Um, and, and yet and, someone was telling me that they found her new collection, Errantry, disappointing. Um, I, I, well, there, there are things in it that are um, odd. Okay. Uh, there, there were things that were in her previous collection that were odd. There, there are these sort of almost tone poem pieces. But it's also a collection uh, that includes uh, The Maiden Flight of Macaulay's Bellerophon, Sure. And uh, at least one other terrific. Oh, uh, Near Zinner is in it. Yeah. So there are two terrific novellas in it. Oh, sure. Uh, I'm not trying to talk the book down. It's just uh, we always talk about, you know, like the best of the year. And you've you know, touched on a few books and I can think of a few others. And one of the discussions that follows at some point is the best collection of the year. And mm-hmm. which, of course, these I mean, these books are, 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 again, not like to like. I mean, Jeffrey Ford's Crackpot Palace is a recent collection, a collection of his best recent work. So is you know, Kids Johnson's at the mouth of the River of Bees, both of which would stand amongst the best of the year. Absolutely. Uh, I think Karen Tidbeck's collection, Jagannath, is her first one for the, uh, in English uh, that's come out from Cheeky Frog. That would stand out as amongst the best of the year. So would The Potawatomi Giant by Andy Duncan. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think any of these, these books are very surprising. They're not surprising, and, and, and one of the reasons they don't immediately come to mind is that when you mention... Um, Andy Duncan or Jeff Ford or Elizabeth Hand, for example, uh, Kids Johnson. It was her first collection. It was stunning. I mean, it was it was probably it's not the her most first stunning. Collection. It is not her well, first collection. Okay, she had that collection that was on her website or something. No, no there was a print version of it. Oh, there was, but yes. it was nobody noticed it. I noticed it. You notice things like this. That's your job. Came out from Scorpio oh. Publishing. I was going, who's Scorpio? See, I don't even remember off the top of my head who published it. Oh, Aaron. wow. Okay, I'm impressed. I'm impressed, okay? <laughs> Nobody but you knows about that book. Even Kidge <laughs> could barely remember about that book when we asked her about it. Mm-hmm. The thing about Kidge's collection uh, and Karen Tidbeck's collection <laughs> is that there's a sense of just utter discovery. We've not seen most of us, yeah. everybody except you, in fact, has never <laughs> seen collections from these people before. <laughs> well, I was going to say, actually, is there sometimes a feeling that we're ticking off the usual suspects? One of the great criticisms of these lists is that they can be insufficiently inclusive and everything else and they're honestly in 2012 is nothing surprising about recommending jeffrey ford or kim uh, or uh, sorry kids johnson or andy duncan karen tidbeck yes because we've not heard of her before so right. that's a great thing so it's always exciting to get somebody new and there's some exciting new first novelists who've come through in 2012 as well so it's exciting mm-hmm. to see them come along but you know are we just ticking off the usual suspects a little bit I think we always do that, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. 
um, a, a new collection of Jeffrey Ford stories or a new collection of Andy Duncan stories is or a new collection of Kelly Link stories, unless something seriously, radically has gone wrong with them, yeah. is going to be one of the best collections of the year. Well, I guess you see there's the key point, isn't it? The point is, have we picked, say, hypothetically, a new, a no, a new non-existent Kelly Link collection so we can't offend anybody? A new mm. Kelly Link collection, uh, because it's a Kelly Link collection or because we read it and thought it was excellent. I know it's probable it would be excellent based on previous experience, but do we sometimes, you know, sort of just tick these things off and move along too quickly. The only way I think you can really judge a, a collection from an established writer like that is uh, if it's a collection which you've not seen before in in previous venues, a, a, a Margot Lanigan collection. I mean, the most stunning thing in recent years for me uh, in, in the last decade of reviewing was to see Black Juice, I guess. Yeah. Uh, which was, which I, I, I read one story by her. Uh, yep. At that point, and suddenly I realized this is an an very very important new talent, who I hadn't seen before. The thing with most of the collections, let's say a, a hypothetical Kelly Link collection, most of us know pretty much what's going to be in it before it comes out. Yeah, because we've been reading along as we go. I mean, that's the reading feeling. With, we go. That, that's a feeling with Crackpot, Crackpot Palace, the Jeffrey Ford book, which yeah. is a big, substantial, attractive, very worthwhile collection of his latest short fiction. I, for example, have probably read. 85% of that book already. So I've got a good I idea suppose, what it's like. Yeah, and I suppose one of the hidden biases of reviewers uh, is that when we get a collection like that, and this was true even of the Kids Johnson collection because the, certainly the most famous stories in it we'd all read before, is that, first of all, you, you know when you get the book in your hands it's a good book because you've read probably the best stories in it. And secondly... Unless you're really, really conscientious and want to reread every word, which I tend to do sometimes, um, you don't have to read as much. True. You, you know this. <laughs> you know this. You know of the of the twelve stories in this book. You know eight eight of them are terrific, and so uh, all you have to do is sort of make some general comments about the shape of the fiction and the direction of the fiction and that sort of thing. I don't know, and I can't recall a case of uh, a short story collection from a major writer who's suddenly fallen off the wagon and, and, and you think, my goodness, this person used to be talented. <laughs> well, actually, but no, but what can happen is that you feel, my goodness, this person's actually more one note than I thought they were. You know, when you, when, you know, when you read stories scattered around the place, when you finally bring them together, that's where you see whether you've got someone who can write across a spectrum of things and has a varied voice or someone who is basically able to write one kind of story and you put it together and it actually doesn't have that the same luster or shine as you'd expect. Well, I think that's inevitable as you get familiar with a writer. I mean, the, the sense of discovery you get, and I, th th these are moments in my reviewing history that stand out, is that sense of discovery, of yeah. the first Kelly Link collection, the first uh, Margot Lanigan collection. But after a while, you know, after so many stories, you begin to recognize what is a Kelly Link story. Of course. What is a Margot Lanigan story? And then you start looking for what are they doing that's a little bit different. Good example this year, Cracklescape. Yes. Uh, suddenly here's Margot Lanigan writing stories set in contemporary Australia. She doesn't do that. That's not a Margot Lanigan story. Yeah. But, but she showed, well, I can do this, and it's still a Margot Lanigan story. So that's, that's a kind of movement you like to see in somebody's career. Though I'd suggest to you that she might argue that she's done it more often than you think. You just don't realize it. I could very well be the case, but so many, of, so many of her settings are indeterminate. And keep in mind that you live in this weird alien continent that has strange deserts and, 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 and 
place names in it that sound like Stanley Weinbaum invented them. So she could be writing something that's completely contemporary Australia and sounds alien to me as an American reader. I live in a strange alien continent. Well, where, yes, do you, where do you live? I live in the center of the universe, don't you know that? <laughs> I live in Trantor. <laughs> that's exactly what, what crossed my mind. At the, I, I thought, that's where he lives, Trantor, except it's the red and the blue Trantor, right? That, right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Let me ask you this then. Has there been any standout moments in 2012 that stand out as part of your reviewing history? You know, when you're saying there's some books that just stand out, like reading Black Juice or anything. Has, has there been anything at that level for you in 2012? I think the Karen Tidbeck book was. Now, the, the reason these things stand out years later is because the writer doesn't disappear. In well, other words, the first Margot Lanigan book turns out to be not a fluke. There, there are, I'm trying to think of an example like this. Yeah. Uh, there are some where somebody does a terrific book of short stories and you realize that's almost all the short stories they have. Somebody who comes very close to that and it was a very good book this year is Tim Powers. Um, sure. A handful of collection of stories. This is a collection of news stories and I liked it a lot. Um, but until this one came out, I was wondering, and I even talked to Tim about this. Um, I was wondering if he was going to write enough short fiction to even do another relatively small collection as uh, the Bible Repairman is. Wasn't that last year? Was that last year? You just won the World Fantasy Award, Gary. Of course it was last year. Well, that's why I was thinking of <laughs> the World Fantasy Award. Okay. See, Tim so, Powers couldn't put together another book of short stories this year. I'm disappointed. Well, there you go. He's a hack. Um, He's the a person, the per actually, no. the, the person that crossed my mind when you're saying that was Ted Chang. I mean, he puts together enough stuff for one collection. And it has sufficient stature in the fact that he's sufficiently remarkable that he keeps going. But there hasn't been that much since. No. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, when another collection comes along from Ted Chang, I'm sure we'll see it. The other person who I put in the same category as Ted Chang in that regard is Eileen Gunn. Yeah. Who just about every story Eileen Gunn writes is a story that every other writer reads. Yes. And yet... She's had one slim volume of short stories out. She's been producing stories at a fairly regular basis lately. Yeah, I believe there's another collection now scheduled either for late 2013 or early 2014. But uh, they, these are also writers who, when they produce their first novel, are going to get enormous amounts of attention. Let me ask you this as another tangent as we pop around. Have you come across any exciting first novelists this year? I've come across one or two. Hmm... I mean, well, yeah. The uh, as you know, my favorite first novel of the year got postponed until next year. <laughs> this is the Sophia Samatar book that's Sophia coming out. Sophia Samatar is a stranger year. in a laundry, which I will gladly do advanced publicity for, and I was all excited to say this was the first novel of the year. Um, I did not read the Saladin Ahmed novel, which I know you liked, and a lot of people that book. I have a lot of respect for. It is a good book. Yep. I would um, encourage people to go go and uh, read it to check it out. We just heard fantastic news about another first novel, which was uh, our Locust colleague, Gwenda Bond, whose book mm -hmm. Blackwood has just been picked up by MTV through Lionsgate and Kelsey Grammer's production uh, thing as a TV series, I believe. That would be wonderful. Which is pretty extraordinary. So that's great. And our on-air official congratulations to, to Gwenda for that. I, I'm... Very excited. I admit I've not read Blackwood yet, but I am very eager to. I think the most interesting first novel I read off the top of my head this year was the G. Willow Wilson book. And I'm hearing the a lot about that. Yeah. The, uh, Wilson can really write. She's a really smart, 
credible writer. It's an interesting book. I don't know that it's an unflawed book, but it's a first novel, so you, know, you take that into account. I think she's really somebody to watch. There's a there's always a question that comes up with novels set in in, in cultures, and this is supposedly I, I believe a culture she knows something about. But there's there's a cultural appropriation argument that comes up, and and yet I see that shifting away from the usual you can't write about any cult you can't write about any culture but your own, into a kind of if you if you do this responsibly and with some maturity, there's a certain amount of courage and um, integrity that is involved in writing a novel like that. And I've heard discussions on both sides of the G. Willow Wilson novel, but most of them have been that, uh, that, that she handles the cultural issue very well. From Okay, speaking as a Westerner with very little background in the Middle East, mm-hmm. that's, that's how it struck me, yes. I don't know, and I've not read any commentary of any, anybody in the Middle East responding to the book, so I'd be very interested to see that. I do know that she spends a lot of time there uh, and has strong ties in the area, so I assume she's well-informed, but that's just an assumption. The book comes across credibly, which is all I could say of it, you know? Well, and I know, and, and we probably don't really know how to judge that. Not uh, at all, no. I wouldn't fairly. presume to. But it's a good book. It is a good book. I don't know that it's a great book, but it's a good one. And one I would happily recommend to, to, to readers out there. The most interesting collection, the most interesting anthology I've seen, um, which I've only read a couple of stories in, is one that's um, not being distributed commercially at all. It's, it's Afro, uh, Afro-SF, mm-hmm. which is an anthology of science fiction by African writers edited by, I think, Ivor Hartman. Is that yep. sound right? Okay. Um, and this is... This is something which I'm fascinated by because I know from having um, talked to Nettie uh, Korofor, who's been back to Nigeria, that there's there's a growing interest in science fiction in Africa. There's a, a, a small publishing industry there. The writers, except for Nettie Korofor, there are no writers in this anthology that I think any of us would recognize yeah. at all. A couple of the stories are really solid stories. Yes. Um, and that's what strikes me as being uh, fascinating about it because... Here's a collection of um, stories by writers that you know nothing about at all. Yeah. And you want to, you, you, you really want it to work. Um, the one I read actually was uh, a story called Proposition 23 by F.A. Okogo. Yeah. And it's, it, it's, it, it's, it's fine. I mean, it's not, uh, uh, th- there are certainly cultural, culturally different attitudes in it. But it's clearly somebody who has modeled the story after a lot of traditional science fiction. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking what uh, I'm thinking of what I used to hear about non-American science fiction. And this I've heard this not from American or English or Australian readers, but from a French critic, uh, an editor of mine. When I was asking him about French science fiction, he said the problem with French science fiction. Actually, he was he was uh, one of the editors on the French gal- um, magazine uh, Galaxies. Mm-hmm. He said the problem with French science fiction is that it's all pale imitation American science fiction. Yes. And I talked to a friend of mine in Germany who said the problem with German science fiction, with a few exceptions like Eschbach, yeah. is that it's pale imitation. You know, it's either Perry Rodin or a pale imitation of America. And I thought that may or may not be true because I'm taking their word for it. What I'm thinking, looking at a couple of these African stories, may not be that we're like, we, we might tend to see it as an imitation of American science fiction. It may very well be that from the point of view of these writers in their cultures, science fiction serves a slightly different purpose. 
I am quite sympathetic to that possibility. Yes, it, it does well, seem uh, quite probable. I will say I think it's it's really important that we identify and acknowledge books like Afro SF and like Three Messages and a Warning, which is the Mexican SF anthology that um, Small Beer also did this year. And and. and Highlighted the same kind of thing. There was, there was a different approach to narrative in it, I think. There was a lot of magic realism, a lot of slipstreamy kind of narratives. Um, but it was a very interesting book, nonetheless. Well, the reason I started thinking, it's hard, it's hard to figure out that without knowing the culture better than I do. But um, the issue came up um, in the 70s, when mostly because of Stanislaus Lim, but because of Lim's uh, prominence, there was a lot of interest in Eastern European science fiction. There are a couple of anthologies of Eastern European science fiction. And the first thing you realized is that science fiction is overtly political. It's the only way you can write within a repressive uh, you know, regime. Yep. And that, that became immediately apparent with, with Lim. But then you, you begin to find out clever ways that, uh, that Yef in, in the Soviet Union, that Yefremov or the Strugatsky brothers yes. yeah. the same material. So you find out this is... This is not a celebration of American technology the way it's been in America. This is a celebration of the possibility of change. Yes, which is a very exciting use for science fiction, frankly. And it is. It, 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 in some ways, that science fiction was – it had to be more immediately relevant to the readers in Eastern Europe um, in, in, in a day-to-day -day sense than most American science fiction was relevant to, to American readers yeah. during that period. I guess the one thing we can say, though, Gary, is that it's a hopeful sign when – there can be an anthology of African science fiction, an anthology of Mexican science fiction published when there's a new collection from a Finnish writer, I believe, it, uh, which is where you know, Tidbeck's from, I believe, mm. um, showing up amongst at least our our view of the, the best books in the field. And I, I don't mean this in, a, in any way a self-congratulatory thing. I just think there is a genuine call, out, a call from within the field to look more broadly f uh, for work of interest and merit. Well, I think that, uh, and this is this is why I, I make the distinction between most important books uh, versus best books. I don't know when I finished reading Afro SF uh, whether any of those stories would be among my year's best stories. Yeah. Uh, it, having read only a couple of them, I'm willing to go out on a limb right now and say it's one of the most important science fiction anthologies of the year, simply because of what it represents. I think that's a reasonable uh, assessment and one that I would endorse. It's certainly the kind of book you want to sort of welcome. And I, sh I would also acknowledge the anthologies of Filipino science fiction that Charles Tan has been overseeing the publication of over the last several years, which also are very worthwhile and important books. And uh, there was, I can't remember the editor's names, but uh, Wesleyan University Press about five years ago did a book called Cosmos Latinos. Yes. Uh, which was a general collection of science fiction and fantasy and magic realism from throughout uh, Latin America. Um, the, the, the friends that I talk to who have done work with um, Argentinian or Brazilian science fiction, there's actually an American scholar named Elizabeth Ginway who's, who did a book on Brazilian science fiction. There's quite a bit of it, and we simply tend not to see it. Yeah. And, and it's one of the things that I find frustrating. We've talked about the problem of translation before, that there might be some terrific science fiction, or at least some terrific fantastic fiction out there that – we never get to see. Oh, I'm sure yeah. that's true. But I'm sure that's always true. I mean, uh, just last for, for all sorts of reasons. First, the, the biggest one is finding work. And when it's non-English, English, English, sorry, it, when it's work originally published 
outside of the British Commonwealth of the United, or the United States, then it's a little bit more difficult, though that just means we have to try harder. It's why things like Lavi Tidhar's World SF blog is very useful. And I think he had a second uh, anthology of World SF. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that kind of thing is val- you know, very, very valuable and helps us all. Well, um, let's celebrate that, and let's let me let me bring up the topic I had in mind. Yeah. For tonight. Sure. Uh, there was a, well, there was a Twitter thing going on about a conference uh, celebrating Ab- Adam Roberts' fiction in the UK. Uh, a, a conference, I guess, a scholarly conference. Yeah. I'm not sure. They just had one on China Mieville. I admire the Brits for doing this because Americans tend not to do that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and. So one of the questions that came up, and one of the questions that came up in that Twitter feed was, who ought to have a conference done about them? Who ought to have a book done about them? In other words, when you start looking at my end of the field, apart from the reviewing end, my end of the field is the academic end, who is being ignored? Who's not being treated? Who's not being celebrated with conferences? Who's not having books written about them? And I, I, I say that partly because I've been involved, at least in an advisory capacity, with what's going to be a long series of critical studies of science fiction writers from the University of Illinois Press. The first one is almost out, I think, maybe out, and John Brunner. Um, I'm awfully t- tempted to say anybody who is not sort of either China Mieville or, or Ursula K. Le Guin or Philip K. Dick probably is, is you know, waiting to have a, a, a conference on their work done. Um, well, as I say, it, it's, has, there been a, has there been a conference on Arthur Clarke's work? I, I, I don't know. This is what I said to you earlier. What do I know? I don't follow conferences. You're the academic. You tell me. Well, I mean, the, 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 I can see, okay, <laughs> if, if, if Americans did conferences with the same sort of panache that, that the Brits do, uh, we would be having a conference on Neil Stevenson for sure. I can see that. And I could see having a, a, a well, there's all sorts of people I could see having a, 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 uh, conference on I, mean, it would, I could see charlie stross being an, a, a subject i mm-hmm. could see well i mean well joanna russ obviously i mean there are the people who are sort of been around for a long time who still haven't had it done so tiptree and ross russ and those kind of people octavia butler uh if it hasn't happened you'd think that uh, chip delaney uh, samuel r delaney would be an obvious choice i think there may have been a conference on chip delaney uh, i think there is a there's probably a bias among academics to organize conferences around people who are themselves academics or at least mm-hmm. associated with academia. I mean, China and Adam are both professors. They both have doctorates. They both have academic publications. They both have, you know, a kind of legitimacy, which means you can sell these people to the people in your university who have never heard of them. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and and the same thing is true with who gets books written about them. For a long time in academia, from the 70s, for example, 70s and 80s, uh, if you looked at most of the academic journals, and uh, and, and and Graham Slight and Farah Mendelssohn can disagree with me about um, foundation, you would find lots and lots of articles and lots and lots of submissions about Le Guin and Lim and Philip K. Dick. And and then it would be a drop-off of some considerable distance before you got to the next uh, group. And I know in the last uh, four or five years, there have been any number of academic articles submitted at least on China Mieville and Neil Gaiman. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, author, which which you've mentioned a couple of times and who we, one of our famous Lost podcasts dealt with, C.J. Cherry, not only not the subject of a conference, she's not one of the authors currently under contract to be treated in this Modern Masters of Science Fiction series of nonfiction books. Why is that? 
I think it's a very great flaw. I do believe there's been at least one critical book written on Cherry. Uh, that's my recollection. I'd have to go and check it, but I'm pretty confident there's been one done. The real, I think, I think there's all kinds of reasons. I mean, the, the case of Cherry, I think, lays itself out before you quite readily. I think academics tend not to discuss her because she's prolific. I think she tends not to be, to be regarded because her work is darker rather than lighter and more appealing. And I think she probably is downgraded because she writes serious fiction and because she's a woman. Um, and possibly because she's uh, been at it for so long that it seems hard to launch into. I mean, she's... I think she's turning 70 this year if she hasn't already turned 70. This is the year she turns 70, which is, I mean, the Great Lost podcast, and I don't want to sort of maybe derail us too much from the topic you're mm. talking about, but the Great Lost podcast addressed the issue of why has C.J. Cherry not received an SFW Grandmaster Award, or should she be well, awarded yeah, that? absolutely. And, and, the, and, and, and yeah, the, the answer, I think, from Joe Walton and, and I and yourself at the time was unreservedly, yes, of course she should get a Grandmaster Award. And then you ask yourself this question, well, why, why isn't she not being regarded? Why isn't the work that she did on the Hugo Award-winning winning novels Down Below Station and um, Citine and her Hugo Award-winning short fiction, why isn't that enough to, to secure her name? Well, uh, it's one of the things that struck me as odd because uh, – and, and there's almost a part of me that thinks if she had stopped in the 70s, I mean uh, – 80s. Yeah. 80s. Well, but, but let's go back to Down Below Station because that sure. impressed me enormously. It impressed you enormously. Joe was a little surprised at the degree to which we both liked it. But one of the things that appeals to that, that, that book has the has the kind of novelistic complexity that academics love. And it's, uh, it's, it's reasonably self-contained. It's complex. It's uh, dense. Uh, it's, it's, it's very appealing. And had she had a handful of books like that, um, maybe the Hawthorne book. I don't know. But she uh, did. I mean, but this is the thing. She did. You see, you say they're reasonably standalone. I'm going to disagree with you, actually. Mm. Most of that series, and for those people who don't read C.J. Cherry, she wrote a future history, the Union Alliance yes. uh, you know, future history. And there are a, a series of key novels in it, um, certainly Down Below Station and Citane and 40,000 in Gehenna. I think Regenesis was supposed to be one, but really isn't a, a key book. All of them stand alone and can be read completely independently. All of them are large, complex, dense narratives. They have well-realized characters. They mm -hmm. have well-built-up backgrounds based on econ economic, social, political backgrounds. They feature very strong female characters. They feature quite interesting examinations of, of gender in that, that context. There's a, there are a lot of parallels between Cherry and Bujold. And Bujold, mm -hmm. Lois McMaster Bujold, is someone who I'm confident will get a Grandmaster Award. She's received more Best Novel Hugo, Hugo Awards than anybody else in the history of the field, I think, now. Mm, and there's a book being, there's an academic book being of written about is. her in the series. Yeah, so. But her stuff is much, much warmer, much more... Um, accessible, I think, in some ways, whereas Cherry can be quite difficult and dark at times. Um, however, but, but the, the parallels, I mean, they write large-scale large future histories, military-based mm. military science fiction, both of them. Uh, they both deal with gender issues very strongly. They both, in fact, use uh, 
reproductive technology and discuss reprodu reproductive technology mm -hmm. in great depth. I am, and I need to go back and research this because Cherry has written close to 70 novels, I think. Um, wow. Yeah. As well as a good chunky collected stories volume. Well, this is, this is one ago. of the problems, and this is, this is one of the reasons to um, drag the conversation back to what I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons we need um, fan scholarship. We need the kind of people that create websites and do books. Uh, they're, uh, a, good, a good example of somebody who has managed to cross the line into academic uh, attention and respectability and classic status and maintain uh, serious fiction, of course, is Gene Wolfe. Yes. Uh, and Gene Wolfe has enormously devoted fans. Um, and they're fan, fan scholars who are legitimate scholars. My, uh, you know, uh, Andre Druse, for example, yeah. Yeah. Um, who, who, who do really, really solid work on him. Yeah. I think one of the problems is with, with Sherry that she's been around for too long and she's written too much over too. If, if you're, if you're a, let's say a 35 year old, um, critic entering the field and you want to write critical essays and, uh, your, your reading of science fiction began with, let's say, Neil Stevenson. Sure. And you look at C.J. Cherry and you think, there's a lot of backstory to catch up on there. There's a lot of reading to even begin yeah. to be able to talk about it. In that sense, the person she reminds me of is Michael Moorcock. Moorcock oh. is the same way. Good example. I've always That's found cool. Moorcock's oeuvre impenetrable, not because he's an impenetrable writer, but because you don't know whether to start with Hawk Moon stuff or Elric stuff or... Whatever all the rest of it is, you know, the War Hound and the World's Pain and all these. There's like a billion books, and they all seem contradictory. I actually think, because uh, I was thinking about this when you were talking, one of the things with Cherry is I think she made a a, ta a tactical error, if you like, and that mm. was having written a lot of series fiction as she's done over the years. That's fine, and she's gone between science fiction and fantasy. That's fine. Uh, she started this current series, the Foreigner books, mm -hmm. which I think of occupied most of the last, I guess, 10 years of her writing off the top of my head, maybe a little bit longer. Well, they're one on, ongoing series that all you know, links together, and you have to have read the preceding books for the current books to make sense. It's the one example, really, of a series in her uh, bibliography where you can really see it, and it's a 13-book or something long series. And I just mm -hmm. wonder if maybe that being the thing that gets published every year is what has helped make it appear more difficult to get into her work than it would otherwise be because everything else you could pick up and start anywhere almost well you, you could and, and and more and more it's easier to do that but the point is you have multiple series and you could pre presumably begin with any series but you can't begin with any novel is there a cj cherry novel that you would recommend to somebody who just wants to get a flavor of cherry okay for fantasy i would recommend the paladin which is mm -hmm. a standalone fantasy novel that Bain published in the late 80s, I guess. Mm -hmm. Spectacularly good book by her. I would recommend something like The Pride of Channer, which is the first of the Channer quintet, which isn't really a quintet. It's kind of like a an odd yeah. trilogy of books because there's Pride, then there's a, a, tri a trilogy that, that's basically one long book, and then Channer's Legacy, which is a, a later book that she, that, that she wrote. But, but Pride stands alone very well. I would probably also recommend Cytine, I think, which I think is a spectacular book. Uh, I mean, there are others through the oeuvre, but, but I mean, I think those give you a, a good entry point. And actually, I think now that I think about it, Joe Walton rightly name-checked Rimrunners, which is one of the Union Alliance books. But mm -hmm. Cherry wrote a, a, a number of 
completely standalone Union Alliance books, Rim Runners, a Heavy Time, a Hellburner, a couple others. And Rim Runners gives you a good sense of how she focuses the entire world down onto one character's subjective viewpoint and then stresses that, puts that character in a great deal of stress and has, has them reveal the world through their experience of it. It's a really interesting book. Well, I think the, that, that's a good list of recommendations. I think one of the things that you mentioned, Bujold, for example, who is probably, shall we say, more accessible generally, is that of the, and I've not read all of Bujold, and I've not read, to be honest, I've read maybe four or five cherry novels. Okay. Uh, but every Bujold I've read, even though there is an enormous complicated uh, backstory involving Miles Rokosigan, uh, you need, you learn as much as you need to know about Miles and his character and his anxieties and, and so forth and so on. In the novel, she's very, very good she is. at giving the appearance of a standalone novel to every new novel she writes in that series. Cher Cherry tends, can be very good at it as well. Though I, and I completely agree. And I should be very clear here. I want to sort of perhaps head off something at this point. When I compare Bujold and Cherry, I'm not in any sense talking Bujold down. I think Bujold's ultimate claim to a grant mastership is uh, absolutely oh, it's obvious and, uh, but, but, and, and well justified as well. She has mm -hmm. been a major writer for the last four, you know, 20 years or something. Uh, it's just a matter of whether Cherry is being overlooked as well. But yeah, I think that Bujold has been – well, actually, because the difference between Bujold and Cherry really is Cherry has been spectacularly more prolific, has more series, and they appear to overlap because mm -hmm. the, the, the uh, Channer books sort of overlap with the Union Alliance books. Um, several other series sort of overlap with the, with the Union Alliance books or with something else, and that begins to make it appear more impenetrable and more difficult to just walk into and get an idea of, where Bujold has one fairly straightforward narrative, mostly. I mean, there are the Chalion fantasy novels, and I think there was Falling Free, which won the Nebula for her, which was at, at an angle to the series, but the rest are basically the Verkosigan story. Right. So, you know, yeah. The other people, I mean, one of the things, I mean, I suppose one of the things that should be said, although I'm not saying this in, in terms of any particular living writer, if you want to get a academic attention, probably it's a good idea to die. <laughs> uh, well, Philip K. Dick, <laughs> seriously, Philip K. Dick had no academic articles to speak of about him, no books about him at all, until after he was dead and was sort of resurrected and, and suddenly he became this thing and, and Jonathan Lethem certainly had something to do with that. Um, there's a, a to the, these days there's a lot of academic work on Octavia Butler. There's going to be a book on Butler in this University of Illinois series. Tragic because she was we didn't know what she was going to do. Yeah. But she was doing a lot of interesting different things. And I think that that tantalizing what what's Un, what's incomplete here? What might have yeah. happened? Oh, Where yeah. was this career going? It's just irresistible to anybody who wants to study an author. Well, particularly since uh, she had quite a substantial career already at the time. It's not like, say, Tom Remy, who died very, very young. No. Uh, you know, this is someone who'd really proven her chops as a major writer and was only going to go from strength to strength and was in the middle of a series, the Parable series, when she died. The uh, last Parable novel did not appear. She had uh, taken a side, uh, side tour into her uh, vampire novel, basically, mm. to... Uh, uh, what's the title of that? I'm, I'm I, for, I, I, the kin Kindred? No, 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 no. Oh, no. I forget. I, dude, I forget. I don't know. But, but at any rate, uh, we'll think of it in a minute. Um, and then there are the cases also of writers who, who take a while to get rediscovered later because 
they didn't die soon enough in a way. <laughs> that sounds particularly bleak, Gary, but okay. Who do we need to kill to make sure that they get better attention? Well, I'm not going to... There's one name I do have in mind, and I, we, we will figure out a way to zero sort of angle around to it later. Um, one example of somebody who is a tragic figure and a great figure at the same time is Roger Zelazny. Yep. Zelazny... There, there's no doubt in my mind that Zelazny reinvented science fiction in the 70s and reinvented the relationship between science fiction and fantasy in the 70s and in some ways came very close to inventing the hard-boiled fantasy narrative in the, in the Amber series. Um, and the Amber series was a terrific series until it wasn't. Yes. Yes. I think that's true, and that, that does happen. And that does happen. Uh, and, and there was a point at which, and, and the story that Charles Brown used to tell me all the time was that he, because Charles was a friend of, of, of Rogers and, and sort of uh, confronted him with this. Uh, you're writing amber novels when you don't need to write amber novels and you don't have anything else to say. And according to Charles, Zelazny said, if I need, an, if I decide I want a swimming pool in my house, I can write an amber novel. Yeah. And, and you, you, can't, to, you can't fault that. No, you can't fault you, you can't fault it. That's a professional writer. I mean, any number of professional writers are doing it. By the time he died, I know Robert B. Parker, the mystery writer, hated writing Spencer yeah. mysteries. But if he needed something, if he wanted to take his family to Europe for six months, he'd write a Spencer novel. Sure, sure. So there's so, something to be said for that. Uh, but there are writers who, there, there are living writers, and this is where we could get in a real serious trouble. <laughs> yes, yeah, writers who have done their major work. Oh, that is a difficult... Uh, yeah. Yes, Gary, the, I, I can see how that might be true. Do you choose to name names, Gary? Let's, 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 ask, our, let's ask our listeners to add names to Twitter. Um, okay, you want me to name a name? Sure. I'm going to get in trouble for this. I'm you are. This. The name I have in mind is Sherry Tepper. Uh, well, uh, well, hang on. Before we get too, too, anyone gets too offended, Sherry is in her early 80s, I think. So if you're saying that she's past her prime now, I mean, eh, that's not the most offensive thing you could say. Well, I'm not saying that she's past her prime in terms of his last... Her, she told me once that yeah. uh, that her environmental, ecological, um, ecofeminism message, and I, I didn't ever understand what ecofeminism was until I talked to her about it, was something she had no control over. No yeah. matter what she wanted to write a novel about, she was going to write about... That. The same problems with gender, the same problems with power, the same problems with social control. And she she made no bones about that. It's uh, fair enough, too, yeah. In her last three or four novels, those issues bubbled to the surface to the expense of the narrative. And yet she's written some of the great novels in the, in, in, in the field. I think she's one of the understudied writers in the field. I, I would agree. Have, I must admit, whilst have, I'm on my cherry hobby horse, there actually are quite a number of writers who are underappreciated and under-discussed and under-analyzed. Uh, and I think, yes, Tepper is a very good example. I actually suspect, though, I, my affection for her work has long since waned, that Marion Bradley falls into the same category. I think that's true. And the, the, the odd thing about, about Bradley is that she has, she seems to have two completely different sets of, well, maybe three completely different sets of followers and advocates. They're certainly the dark over people. Yeah. There are the Mists of Avalon people, yeah. and there is a small but hearty band of science fiction fans that remember her early career. Yes. And I, mean, I read a good chunk of Dark Over novels, Gary. Not all the I collaborative read, ones, but I read, I read the old ones. Well, the thing about the Mists of Avalon, 
which is partly it's partly been I think denigrated because of having been such a huge bestseller. Yeah, I but, couldn't read that book. Um, I did read it, and I read it because one of my favorite books as a kid had been T. H. White's *The Once and Future King*, mm -hmm. and I was fond of the traditional Arthurian legend. I read I was in graduate school. I read all of Mallory's *Mort d'Arthur*. I love that story, and *The Mists of Avalon*. Partly because I love the story so much literally showed me a different perspective on that story and indirectly a different perspective on the world. Okay. Okay, these these women characters who had barely been uh they the, the, barely uh, been figures of any significance at all. Yeah. Uh, in, in in Mallory and who were treated somewhat sympathetically but very romantically in in TH White suddenly had their own story. Mm -hmm. And I thought if that is a way of looking at fantasy that revised it, 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 was, it was one of the most in, important feminist moves I think in the history of fantasy writing and I think it didn't lead directly to a great novel which I think is a great novel like Ursula Le Guin's Lavinia mm -hmm. but, but it, it certainly opened the door to let's look at these stories from yeah. the view of the women characters yes I agree I agree one of the great works of fan fiction Gary it absolutely is but as somebody pointed out, uh, fan fiction, I forgot who was pointing this out. I was reading it or somebody was telling me at it at World Fantasy that Milton's Paradise Lost is fan I fiction. I have a funny I, feeling that might have been Graham Joyce during one of the Great Lost podcasts, Gary. It could very well have been Graham Joyce. Somebody who we hope to be talking to again in coming weeks. We can, and we can find out if he's the one that pointed that out. But absolutely, fan fiction is, you know, I mean, Dante's Divine Comedy is Bible fan fiction. <laughs> oh, it's a slippery slope once you start down it, that fan fiction route, isn't it? But here's, here's the thing. Fan fiction is an easy term to do. And fan fiction in today's world tends to mean things like Fifty Shades of Grey. I understand that. But if you go back and look at... Uh, Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, or if you look at the medieval uh, heroic romances of Chrétien de Troyes and stuff like that, I mean, all every Arthurian piece of fiction since Mallory in the 15th century has been fanfic. Well, that's true. That's assuming you accept the slightly reductio ad absurdum ar argument that anything that pastiches or reuses previously existing work is fanfiction. And on one hand, I can I accept the argument because, because it's accurate. But it's not accurate in spirit, if you know what I mean. I don't think, you know. I think it's a certain degree of mischievousness in in, in the whole discussion. Oh, there, there, you, you you can take it to the level of absurdity, and you can you can say that okay, um, that that great medieval collection of stories, the Gesta Romanorum, gave all these plots to Shakespeare, and therefore Shakespeare's writing fanfic. Mm -hmm. uh, well, yeah, there are traditional matters that fantasy or science fiction writers can write about. And, and it doesn't all make it fanfic. I, I, fanfic is not the only way of dialoguing with earlier works. It's true. That's very true. Uh, certainly a history, for example, of, um, I don't know, let's say, let's take, take a story like Heinlein's Universe in 1941. Sure. You can, you can just list the writers from Harry Harrison to Brian Aldous uh, who have done versions of that, and they knew they were doing versions of sure. it. That doesn't sure, sure means they're reconsidering the idea from their perspective. Yeah. Well, just as I think if you go through the story notes in a collection I just sent to you uh, today, 
Mm -hmm. uh, there are many, many different takes on Frankenstein and alternate views of Frankenstein and mm -hmm. authors as diverse as Karen, jo jo no, Karen Joy Fowler and uh, John Kessel and others have written them, uh, as have Howard Waldrop and many more. So, I mean, it just keeps coming around and around. Yeah, and I think that um, the same thing's true with Dracula, the same thing's true with you know, sort of any of the iconic figures. I mean, one of the things I was reading uh, recently, we we're talking about La Vie Tidar. I was reading mm -hmm. his story. I can't remember the title of it. That was in Steampunk Three, and it was clearly he was just having a hoot. He was going to throw in every name he could, from Oscar Wilde to Karl May to yep. Jekyll and Frankenstein. And part of the game is, um, is 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 seeing if you can move these pieces around on the board and, and just uh, make fun of them. I mean, even the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, it, the, the graphic novel, not the movie, was a classic example of that. To, to, to jump around, just a quick question since you, you mentioned Levy. Do you think he's now a major figure in the field? I think he's... No. I think he's on the edge. Okay. I think he really is on the edge. Because I, I really think the um, the steampunk novels uh, did not... When I was reading uh, Osama, which I was enormously impressed with, hmm. and I will have to say that I was really glad I gave that a review because... I was standing there about to announce it's getting the world fantasy. Winner. I'm going to feel really silly now if I hand this. But I think Osama is the entry point to being a major writer in the field. Okay. And well, I think well given can, that he's 36, I mean, he's got, or I think he's 36. Uh, he's still got an awful lot of writing in front of him. So you'd hope that that would be the case. I think from here on, it's up to him to be a major writer in the field or not. Yes. Well, maybe on that note, Gary, we should begin to think about, you know, sort of winding up. This this is, the, you know, the week after all when, you know, it's been finally announced that there will be no, soon there will be no more Twinkies in the world. Twinkies so, were invented here in Chicago, I want you to know. And uh, everybody I've talked to today, uh, the, there was a, a strike last night. They were going to, they couldn't afford to raise salaries for the union workers. The union workers had taken three years of pay cuts. Twinkies and Ho-Hos and Ding-Dongs are going away. And everybody I've talked to has the same reaction, which is, I'm going to miss them even though I haven't eaten one in 20 years. <laughs> My only really awareness other than American television and movies was a article I once read by an archaeologist who said that they were enormously useful when you were trapped underground. Not as food, but, but as lighting, because they'll burn for about two or three hours because of all the fat and oil in them. <laughs> And because they they never decay because of the preservatives in them. The other, yeah, that's the other urban legend about Twinkies is that you leave one out in the desert for six months, you can come back and eat it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'd want to do that. I don't want to do that either. <laughs> so, so, so we will look forward to another episode of the Cood Street Podcast, where possibly we will be even more rejuvenated. But I think we shall try to not talk about recommended reading for the next couple of. No, we're podcasts. not going to talk about reading. Let's let's see if we can get some friends to talk to us. Any friends out there want to talk to us? Get in touch. Oh, that sounded needy, Gary. It's really needy. We're really needy. <laughs> it's the end of the year. It's getting to be Christmas season. If only we had the bandwidth for a video podcast and we could have a little party. You know, we had a little Cood Street party. We could get everybody in, a, in one of those Google circles with videos and we could all have a, 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 a drink and cheer, cheer the new year in. Absolutely. That's what we should. We, well, let's start thinking about a New Year's podcast. Ah. Possibly only with, with sort of new writers we could get Saladin and other people in. Who knows? I don't know. We probably won't do it, but it could be fun. Well, you know, sometime, this is something we could think about because by, sometime by, um, 
by the middle of January, as you know, we hope to get some kind of a finalist list together for the Crawford Award as the best new fantasy writer. Yes. And we could yes. certainly organize some of those people, I hope. That could be fun. Let, let's okay. give it some thought. Let's look at that. But until then, I think it's time to set down the cudgel and get on with the rest of the weekend. I think so. And have a nice rest of the weekend. And for me here, I'll be having Thanksgiving with the family in a few days. And for us, we've got a, a party and, and a concert tonight. So busy, busy times. Till okay. next week, my friend. I'll talk to you then. Talk to you then.